Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, We're thrilled that you're here, and I want to wish you uh, a happy third week of Easter. Uh, We're also in the third week of our series called The Beautiful Gospel. Uh, The purpose of this series is to help kind of give us uh, at least a start uh, of a coherent theological system. Again, the goal is just like if each one of our kind of thoughts and perspectives or beliefs uh, is a puzzle piece, uh, we want to make sure that we can fit all of those together and in the end have a picture that makes sense and is coherent uh, with each other. And so this uh, seven-week series is kind of seven tenets of faith of the very good gospel. Uh, So uh, as we do each week, I want to turn this week our attention to the scriptures, but I want to do that in a particular way. Uh, because this morning I want to do something unique, which is explore the Scripture uh, as a whole. Now, by that, I don't mean that in one sermon I want to preach from Genesis to Revelation, but rather I mean that where I would normally preach uh, messages from the Scripture, today I want to preach a message about uh, the Scriptures. Uh, and try to, the reason for this is we, if, we're, if we're going to understand the beautiful gospel from the Scriptures, we need to know uh, kind of what is our approach and what is this book. Uh, So the the Bible, then, is this ancient collection of letters, poems, and stories that inspire, uh, that confuse, that encourage, that guide, and sometimes even bewilder. And this collection, which, by the way, today, bear with me, I'm like fighting, I've been fighting this cold all week, and so uh, maybe a blessing, this might be as loud as I get all day, Um, (laughs) so... Uh, But anyway, just kind of work with me as I uh, do my best to make it through here. Uh, So this collection of letters and poems and stories uh, have been called inspired by God. Some in the church have even called these scriptures inerrant, uh, which means without error. Uh, And throughout history, the church has called this book authoritative. Uh, And yet, despite these claims of inspiration and authority and inerrancy, Uh, If we're all being honest, few Christians actually read it. (laughs) Uh, But I understand that, right? And I'm not here to put a guilt trip on anyone at all. In fact, I would say I understand why Uh, a vast majority of Christians don't read it. It's big. It can be really confusing. It can be overwhelming. And further, when preachers like myself say, you need to read it, we often say that without any coaching about how to read it, what it is, or what it is for. Uh, And so... While there's no way in a single message to tackle all of these questions, uh, today I want to I address, at least just touch on, three questions. Uh, what is the Bible? Uh, how are we to read it? And what is it for? What is the Bible? How are we to read it? And what is it for? And again, I want to do this because as we explore the very good news of Jesus Christ, uh, we turn to the Scriptures as the primary witness to Jesus. And so I thought I would spend a week in this series just trying to help us understand this book and how we can read it in ways that will aid us in our journey of faith. Uh, So to get started, I want to give you um, like our statement on the Bible. This is uh, is, uh, from Emmaus. This is what we share with like our covenant partners. It's what's on our website. Uh, It's very much in line with kind of our denominational belief, but it's kind of our own wording. Um, And this is so so here it is. Uh, We believe the Bible... Uh, was written by human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is a unified story that leads to Christ and contains all truth necessary 
for faith and Christian living. Uh, that's this church's statement on the scriptures. Uh, we believe the Bible was written by human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is a unified story that leads to Christ and contains all truth necessary for our faith and Christian living. Now, there's a couple things I want to point out about this uh, statement. First, that the Bible is written by human authors. Uh, this means that it contains evidence of the author's uh, humanity and personality. For example, each of the Gospels reads differently because it reflects the voice, the perspective, the convictions, uh, the audience of its original authors. Um, and New Testament letters written by the Apostle Paul all uh, kind of have the same tone. They have a unity to them because they're written by the same author. Uh, now, but we believe, of course, that these authors were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, but we can't, we can't miss the fact that this book contains so much humanity, right? That, that in, some, in some way, we ought to see ourselves reflected in the pages of this book. Uh, even though we call it divine and authoritative and all of these things, we cannot miss the human element of the Scriptures because it was written by human authors. The second thing I want to point out about this statement is that the Bible is this unified story that leads to Christ. So even though the scriptures aren't organized chronologically, in other words, some people kind of set out to read the scriptures and they start page one, right? Genesis, that's, that flows pretty easy, like pretty fast-moving narrative. You can get through Genesis pretty well. Even into Exodus, Exodus starts, uh, you're going, you're moving right along, and you're like, hey, this is just this story that's telling. And then you get to Leviticus and you're like, you like hit a wall. <laughs> and then you start getting into all the prophets and the kings and all these kinds of things and you recognize, well, where am I at in the story, Right? Uh, and so even, the script, even though the scriptures aren't organized chronologically, uh, I would want to mention, say and, and help us to understand that the Bible still does have this narrative arc to it, that the Bible, the text has movement to it, that the story is going somewhere, it's leading somewhere. Um, and, and which is to say, if we say the scriptures are this story, this unified story that leads to Christ, uh, we have to say then that there is this movement, this narrative arc to it, because all of the stories that we either read or watch um, have this kind of movement. In other words, none of them are flat. Uh, here's what I mean by flat or a flat story. Uh, if a story were flat, then we would know everything there is to know about the characters right at the beginning. And when we get to the end of the story, we would understand everything the same as we did at the beginning of the story because the story didn't take us anywhere. So if a story was flat, we would know everything we needed to know about the characters and we would have all the same perspective at the end as we did at the beginning because everything was given to us just right up front. Here it is, right? And to which you would like be bored and fall asleep because this is not a good story, right? So good stories don't do this. What good stories do is they take us on a journey of discovery where we receive new things, new information. We learn to see things differently than we once had because of the movement that the story is taking us on. So let me give you an example. And no, it's not from Ben-Hur. <laughs> uh, the story is from a 2010 film uh, called The Book of Eli. Now, this book, uh, this film is really, really great, uh, and it has this surprise ending. Now, if you haven't seen it, 
Um, spoiler alert ahead, so maybe go grab a cup of coffee or something like that. But also, it's nine years old, so if you were like thinking, hey, I was going to watch that movie and now you're spoiling it, you're just, you're just lying, lying about that. You weren't going to see it, right? Because you're pretty late. So, so here we go. Uh, early in the film, we're introduced to Eli, uh, who is a wanderer in post-apocalyptic America, uh, and he's heading west with one item of precious cargo that he believes will help restore humanity. Now, throughout the film, we see Eli hunt a small game with a bow and arrow for food. Uh, this is a, this kind of post-apocalyptic world, uh, like water is the highest priced commodity. It's the hardest thing to come by, clean water. Uh, so it kind of, it's like this very, very desperate world that they live in. And so he hunts small game with a bow and arrow. Uh, he has to fight uh, in order to protect his, his precious cargo. And we see this, this character, Eli, uh, perform all kinds of amazing feats throughout the film. Now, while he's heading west, he, he runs into a gang that realizes that what he is carrying, and they, they realize what he's carrying, and, and they take it from him uh, because they believe that while he hopes it will help restore humanity, they believe that it could help them uh, gain control over people and manipulate them into obedience. And, and so they give it to their gang leader so that he might have power that he so longs for in kind of this new post-apocalyptic America. Now, in the last scene of the movie, uh, we learn that Eli is actually blind and that his precious cargo is a Braille Bible. He arrives at a facility on the coast of California where an organization is seeking to collect relics uh, from America's history and strategize about how to rebuild the nation. Uh, but he doesn't have this Braille Bible in his possession any longer. So he lays down um, and begins to recite the entire scriptures from the beginning with a scribe present so that they can now have a written copy of the scriptures. Um, it's a surprise ending. Uh, it's a phenomenal ending. Um, and, and all of the commentary about how Scripture can be used, like abused to, to control people and gain power, like all of that aside, uh, the point is, it's one of those movies where the surprise ending reframes everything that came before it, right? Uh, you immediately want to go back and watch it again, but with the end in mind. Uh, it's, the same, it's a film in the same vein as A Beautiful Mind or The Usual Suspects or The Prestige. Uh, and here's what I want, like, okay, this is great. I thought we were talking about the Bible. Uh, here's what I want to say. The Bible actually functions in the same way, right? This is the big reveal, that the, that the, surprise in, that the Bible itself has this surprise ending, and the surprise ending is Jesus Christ himself who proclaims the kingdom of God that is entirely different from all other kingdoms and then dies on the cross, defeats death through resurrection. That's the surprise ending of the scripture, and it changes everything with me. So, in other words, if we were to read the story of the scriptures from the beginning, would we in fact expect Jesus to be who Jesus was, right? This is a difficult question because we have so much kind of like... We're so far removed from the actual writing of the scriptures. But if you just read the story as it is from the beginning leading up to Christ, you would expect to, for Jesus to be a warrior Messiah who uh, releases Israel from Roman oppression by way of violent revolt and reestablishes the glory days of Israel. 
That's exactly what you would expect Jesus the Messiah to do. Just to fall in line with all of the other kind of leaders of the day. But instead, we get to a Messiah who proclaims a message of forgiveness, that his kingdom is open to all who will come by faith, and then he dies taking the world of our sins onto himself. And then he raises from the dead, disarming the powers and authorities, and defeating death. Yeah, right? It's a surprise ending. And if we, if we don't have sort of this, this sense of, whoa, this changes everything, then we aren't reading it right. You with me? That, that absolutely this, this message of Jesus, the action of Jesus, is a surprise ending that reframes everything before it. And so if we see the Bible as a story that has dynamic movement toward the revelation of God in Christ, then it reframes everything that has come before. Now, here's the deal. Some, though, have tried to read the Scripture not as this dynamic story that leads to Christ, but rather as a flat text. And what I mean by that is taking every verse in the Bible at face value and then giving it equal weight and authority as everything else. That's what I mean by the Scripture as a flat text. You take the Scripture, uh, you take every verse at face value, and you give it equal weight as everything else. But here's the thing. The Bible is an ancient book that must be interpreted and therefore cannot be read as a flat text. Let me give you an example. Okay? This will be fun. I can tell that this is, you guys are all thrilled, right? <laughs> so, uh, so Exodus chapter 20, it'll be up on the screens. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. Exodus chapter 20, verses 20 and 21. It says this. Uh, now, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, uh, for the slave is his money. This is the word of God for the people of God. <laughs> Thanks be to God, right? Uh, so so let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Uh, if I were to ask for a show of hands of those of you who agree with this text... Um, I would hope that none of us would raise our hand based on the witness of Christ in your life, right? Because here's, if we take this text at face value and give it equal authority with Jesus' words, then a couple of things have to be true. Number one, that slavery is okay, right? This, this scripture is not fighting against slavery. It's actually assuming the reality of slavery and in some ways even endorsing it, Okay? Uh, so if, if, if it's a flat text, all things equal, uh, then in order to, uh, as us evangelicals love to do, apply this to our lives, right, uh, then we would have to say, number one, slavery is okay, and number two, that if a slave, die, if a slave dies a day or two after you beat them, uh, then in fact it's okay because they were just your property anyway. And it was, it's essentially the same as just losing a few dollars. Right? <laughs> okay, so um, I will take your silence as you're understanding the point, right? That, that, there's, that the witness of Christ in our life makes this text like, what is happening here? This cannot be true. This cannot be the case. And so the, that's in fact, uh, in fact, the, what the witness of Christ does is it shows us that not only can this not be true, but that every single person has intrinsic value and should not be dehumanized. 
and reduced in such ways as slavery or reducing a person down to a commodity does. And so the Bible, the point I'm trying to make is that the Bible is this unified story that leads to Christ. That Christ is the surprise ending of the biblical story that reframes everything that came before. That we read everything before Christ through the lens of Christ. Uh, And then everything after Christ is commentary on how in the world are we supposed to live now that new creation is breaking in, right? Everything changed when Jesus Christ came and proclaimed his kingdom and and died on the cross and rose from the grave. That changes everything. So now we got to reread everything before, and now we got to work out what in the world this means now that new creation has has come. You with me? All right. Now, this leads right into our second question. Then how are we to read the scriptures. Well, just to nail down on the point that I think I've already made is just as Eli's blindness becomes the interpretive center for understanding uh, this film, the book of Eli, so Jesus is the interpretive center of the Bible. We read it in light of Christ, okay? Jesus is the interpretive center of the Bible. We read the Bible in light of Christ, who is the full revelation of God. Now, there are two words that people often like to talk about when talking about the Bible. Uh, The words are inerrancy and infallibility. Now, they both mean essentially the same thing, which is incapable of wrong or without error. Uh, So folks claiming biblical inerrancy, uh, which the Church of the Nazarene never has, uh, folks claiming biblical inerrancy are trying to claim that the Bible is without errors of any kind, that it is a perfect book. And they make these claims uh, from the perspectives of science, anthropology, history, uh, literature, etc., etc. And these are are pretty big claims to make. I would say it isn't at all difficult to find errors in the Scripture from a scientific perspective, right? With all the sort of modern scientific knowledge that we've gained, uh, it's quite easy, actually, to look at Scriptures and find scientific error. Uh, And even from a purely historical perspective, it's easy to discredit the Scriptures because at times they give conflicting record of events. Um, And so to ask, is the Bible inerrant, is a bit like asking... um, did Mozart's music win? Right? It doesn't even make sense. It's kind of like the wrong category of question uh, to be asking the Bible because the Bible isn't setting out to be a perfect scientific witness or even a perfect historical record. What the Bible is setting out to do is to be a I hope you get this, unified story that leads to Christ, right? It's the, the Bible is setting out to bear witness to the revelation of who God is in Christ. Which means when we come to the book, we shouldn't be like getting out our science textbooks. We should be caught up in worship of the Lamb of God. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, yes, yes. <laughs> All right, so in his book uh, called Cross Vision, author and pastor Greg Boyd poses an important question. He says, what did God inspire the Bible to infallibly accomplish? That's a pretty good question. What did God inspire the Bible to infallibly accomplish? And he answers it by saying this, if you expect the Bible to conform to contemporary standards of scientific, historical, literary, or logical perfection, I'm afraid that you are going to be greatly 
disappointed. God inspired all Scripture to point us to Jesus. Now, when we say the phrase, Word of God, we often mean the Scriptures, as we should, right? In fact, after we read the Scriptures, we even say, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. However, I want you to recognize, and and I want to remind us this morning, that the Word of God exists in at least two forms. The first and the primary is the incarnate Word of God. Incarnate is a fancy word for God made flesh, Jesus Christ. The first Word of God, the primary Word of God, is in fact Jesus Christ Himself. The the Gospel uh, writer John bears witness witness to this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and, and tabernacled or made His dwelling among us, right? And so John is is telling us something very important about the nature of who Jesus Christ is. He is the first and primary Word of God. Now then we also have the written Word of God. So you have the incarnate Word and you have the written Word. The written Word of God is the Scriptures that we have before us. The incarnate Word is the person of Jesus Christ. And what the written Word does again and again is bears witness to the fact that the incarnate word has authority over it. Let me say that again. What the written word, that is the scriptures, what they do again and again is bear witness to the fact that the incarnate word has authority over the scriptures. Yes, yes, right? This is not, this is not heresy, I promise. This is historic Christianity. <laughs> Let me give you an example. Jesus himself actually says this. Uh, This is found in John chapter 5, verse 39. Uh, John records a story in his gospel where Jesus says this explicitly. It says this. This is Jesus talking to the religious leaders of the day. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. (laughs) Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Yeah. In other words, the journey of Christian faith is not primarily knowledge about this book. That is important. And you cannot, I don't think you can go without it. We need knowledge. But the journey of Christian faith is not about gaining more knowledge about a book. It's about being in relationship with the person of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. You with me? That's Christian faith. Now, the New Testament writers and the early church leaders all picked up on this idea that the incarnate word has authority over the written word and that everything must be read in light of this now incarnate word of God. And and so we see this throughout. Let me give you another example. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. He says this, As it is written, which means he's quoting from Old Testament scriptures, he says, As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. Now, Paul, in Romans chapter 15, is actually quoting from two different places when he says, as it is written. He's he's quoting from Psalm chapter 18, verse 49, and from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. Um, 
Now, he's quoting from these places in Romans 15 in order to make the point that Gentiles are now accepted into the fold of faith in Christ. Okay? So he's making the point that Gentiles, those who used to be considered outsiders, those who would never be in, those who had no possibility of making it into ethnic Israel, are now welcomed by faith because of Jesus Christ. That's the point he's making. Now, Psalm 18, 41 through 49, in other words, the passage that Paul quotes in context, shows us that the psalmist is actually talking about how he will praise God having Gentiles underfoot and trampled. If you look at Psalm 18 in context, the context is I'm stomping those who are outside, those who don't belong, those who aren't part of the club, I'm stomping them underfoot, and now with with them underfoot, I will praise you among the Gentiles. That's the context of Psalm 18. The context of Deuteronomy 18, verses 41 and 43, in context, talks about vengeance and curses upon the Gentiles. And so the original Old Testament author's intent behind both of these was actually curses upon the Gentiles. But what Paul does is he reinterprets them in light of Christ and uses those same passages then to talk about how Gentiles are now welcome and accepted in Christ. Right? Crazy stuff. When you start to like pick up how New Testament authors actually use Old Testament quotes and you start like nailing down what is this quote actually saying in context and how are they reframing it in light of Christ, you find that this happens again and again and again. Because we are to read the scriptures through the lens of Christ. Let me say this. Our faith is centered on Christ, not the scriptures. The scriptures are absolutely important. Yes, don't misunderstand me. Don't mishear me today. But our faith is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is the word of God. And what the Bible does perfectly is point us to Christ. Therefore, we are to read the entire Bible through the lens of Christ, who is the perfect revelation of who God is. And let me tell you, when I came to understand this, it absolutely changed the way I began to read and understand Scripture. And I hope that it will for you too. Now, now for the third question. What is the Bible for? What is the Bible for? Now, some will say that the Bible contains uh, rules Christians should follow. Others will say the Bible contains answers to every single question. Uh, Still others will say the Bible offers us great wisdom uh, for faith and Christian living. (laughs) However however you answer the question, uh, we're actually talking about, when we say how are we, what what is the Bible for, what we're actually talking about is the authority of the Scriptures. Now, if you're anything like me, biblical authority usually meant that I better live biblically or else. You with me? So, like, when we talk about the Scripture having authority, it's like, you better do what it says or else. (laughs) Um, But therein lies the trouble. What is biblical? (laughs) What is biblical? Uh, Now, sometimes when we say biblical, what we're just saying is, is it in the Bible? Uh, And under this rubric, there is a whole laundry list of things that could be biblical, right? 
Uh, among them, genocide, sexual promiscuity, murder, incest, jealousy, greed. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that are biblical, right? Uh, now, I know that I'm not being completely fair. I'm being a little bit melodramatic. Uh, but, so what we usually mean when we talk about something being biblical is that we, does the Bible speak favorably about it? Maybe a particular way of being a spouse or being a parent or a neighbor or being human. And so, so we go from like biblical as in does it appear in the Bible, which doesn't help us at all, to biblical, does it, is it spoken of positively in the scriptures? But even under this more strict rubric, things like polygamy and slavery could be understood as biblical. Isn't it true that the Bible talks about how God blesses Solomon with many wives? And the scriptures themselves never, ever forbid slavery. Uh, at least not explicitly. So what is the Bible for, and what does it mean to live biblically, and what do we mean when we say scriptural authority? What do we really mean? Well, the Greek word for authority is sometimes translated as weight or power or influence. And so, as the, so the scriptures having authority uh, is, is this way of saying the scripture has authority because the authority of God is exercised through the scriptures, as we read the story of God's interaction with, uh, with humans throughout history. So, so this idea of authority is, are we giving weight to this story? Are we giving substance to the story as it's told? And are we allowing it then to inform our lives and direct our lives? And are we in fact gaining the wisdom that we are to gain as we read it in the right ways, right? So the story is authoritative because it holds weight. Uh, let me give you an example. In the movie The Sandlot, right? Yeah, woohoo! <laughs> In the movie The Sandlot, Scotty Smalls moves into a new neighborhood and is invited to play baseball with some friends on the sandlot. Now, on his first day playing, one of the boys hits the ball over the fence into the neighbor's backyard. And as Smalls goes to climb the fence and get it, the other boys start screaming at him, yelling at him not to do it. Don't go over that fence, <clears throat> right? Now, when Smalls asks why, they tell him the legend of the beast. It all started at the Myrtle junkyard, right? When Mr. Myrtle got a new pup. And Mr. Myrtle fed his pup huge ribs of meat so that he could grow up to be the beast. And this beast would protect the junkyard and kill any thieves who entered. But he got to killing so many thieves and they kept disappearing that even the cops had to come and tell old Mr. Myrtle to chain up the beast so that he wouldn't roam the neighborhood eating children. <laughs> I, didn't, I wouldn't tell this story on Family Sunday, right? Uh, and that's why there has, that's where he's been ever since, waiting for the day that he could break free and eat again. And so that is why we don't get the baseball out of the neighbor's yard, right? Now, Smalls' question was actually quite simple. And they could have given him a bullet list of reasons why and a whole exposition of all of this kind of stuff. But what they do is they tell him a story. Stories have authority in our lives. One story and Smalls was convinced that he was never, ever, ever going to jump that fence and retrieve the baseball again. 
And so the Bible is a story animated by the Spirit of God meant to point us to Christ and the book, the Bible is the book that bears witness to the beautiful gospel and it has authority because we give it weight in our lives. You with me? So let me say this. I know I've given you a lot to think about. I think you should read the Bible. But I don't think that you should do it because that's what you're supposed to do. I don't think you should do it because that's what Christians are supposed to do. I think that you should read the Bible because it is a reliable record of God's redemptive, creative work in the world. And it connects us to the living word of God and points us to new creation. That's why I think you should read the scriptures. The Bible is a unified story that leads to Christ. And because Christ is the is the surprise ending, the center of the story, we ought to read everything through the lens of Christ. Read everything in light of Christ. And the Bible, well, what is it for? It is for Christian living meant to inspire us because it's a reliable record of God's redemptive and creative work in the world. That God has loved humanity enough to send His only Son to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, to end the cycle of violence and sin and evil by offering forgiveness on the cross, by disarming the powers and authorities, by raising from the dead. It's this story that is absolutely beautiful. So I think you should read it. But read it well. Read it through the lens of Jesus Christ. Because otherwise, the Bible, just as the book of Eli bears witness to, (laughs) can be used for all kinds of things. It can be used to do all kinds of damage. We need to read it well as the people of God. And I think the best way to read it is with Christ right in the middle, focusing on new creation. Amen? Now, if you're looking for opportunities to do so, and to engage with the scriptures on a more regular basis, I encourage you to join a life group. Life groups that meet weekly or bi-weekly and are, are just these groups that will take time to wrestle with scriptures, often based out of the sermon that's yet to come to kind of get us ready to receive the word of God that he has for us on Sundays. Um, and I think it's good to do that in groups. Um, you know, I'm not trying to be trite or just say a commercial, like a commercial for life groups. Uh, I'm actually serious because um, truth has always been meant to be discerned in community with others. Uh, there's, there's a certain element of, of just like, hey, I'm reading and, and, and I have this new inspiration, this new wisdom, this new encouragement, and that is good and that is great and you should do it and you should, ha- you should have these kind of personal moments of reflection on the scriptures. But but truth is always meant to be discerned in community with people. And so it's not sort of this isolated thing. And so I think a Bible study through a program like Life Groups is a great way to do that. And let me finish by saying this. I have spent my entire adult life writing sermons 
that explore the written word of God. It's almost all I think about. I don't listen to the radio in the car. I listen to podcasts about theology. Um, during the week, studying, trying to find out. And, and you might ask, like, what motivates someone to do that? Well, what motivates me to do it and to continually explore the written word of God and then to provide sermons on it? I do it with the hope that these explorations would lead each and every one of you to an encounter with the living God. That's why I do it. I don't do it so that you can have more knowledge. I don't do it so you can win at Bible trivia. In fact, if you ever play Bible trivia with me, I guarantee you will win. <laughs> I am terrible at just like solid facts and who begat who, right? I'm terrible at it. But I'm, I'm, trying, I'm seeking to understand this book because I believe to the core of who I am that this book bears witness and bears witness to the living Christ that what this book does is point away from itself and to the living Christ. And if all we ever do is bury our nose in here and we never encounter the living Christ, then we have missed the point of what this is trying to do. And so I preach week after week, and some of you would say after week, <laughs> with the hopes that any exploration of this text would lead us to an encounter with the living God, the incarnate word who is Christ Jesus. Amen? Let me say a word of prayer and then I'll lead us to the Lord's table today. Heavenly Father, thank you for the written witness of Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess and recognize today that this book is filled with things that are bewildering and confusing and hard to understand and must be interpreted and understood and, and wrestled with. And so God, today, we commit ourselves to that process of wrestling, but with the centering truth that this book bears witness by the power of your Holy Spirit to the incarnate word of Christ, to the incarnate word of God. And so Lord, help us as we, as we read, as we study, as we explore um, this book. May we encounter you. May we not miss the point. And so God, I pray that you would meet us right where we're at today. And Lord, would you meet us at the table in just a few moments as we gather around where you are going to proclaim that your body has been broken, that your blood has been shed for us. And God, we, we do that as a regular practice, not just of remembrance, but in order that we might embody the unity that is your desire for the body of Christ. That each of us coming with different perspectives and opinions and um, financial viability and, and race and like all of these kinds of things, God, we gather around your table in unity with one, at one in Jesus, 
and at the cross. And so, Lord, uh, be with us in these moments. Speak to us. And if there's anything that I've said, God, that would be helpful, would you solidify it in people's hearts and minds um, that we might encounter you in this place? So be with us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.